everyone. Welcome to another Asco GU podcast. Tom and I are here with Chris Bergerow, and we're going to talk about quality of life, one of our favorite topics. There's some data being presented at Asco GU, both by Tom and Chris. So, Chris, welcome. If you want to just introduce yourself briefly, and then maybe we'll start with your ongoing efforts and the data you're presenting at Asco GU. Maybe you can just give us some background about that. Oh, perfect. First, I'd like to thank for inviting me to participate in this outstanding podcast. Uh, I'm That's Chris. Kind of you, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I am. I am a psychologist uh, from Brazil. I did a three-year postdoctoral fellowship with Montipal at City of Hope, and also my master's and my PhD here in Brazil. So I'm back to Brazil, and I'm now the head of the supportive care of a huge group in Latin America. So yeah, here, here I am. <laughs> Thank you. So talk, I know you've done work, you know, with Tom and Monty and others about refining the questions we're asking around quality of life. And, and Tom and I have had other podcasts where we've, um, you know, sort of criticized the existing questionnaires as maybe not relevant or not all the questions. So talk a little bit about what your efforts have been, including your, your ASCO GU data. Uh, Brian, I think it would be more accurate to say we've highlighted the strengths and the weaknesses of the previous okay. questionnaire. All right. Yes. Yeah. Whatever Tom said. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he belittles he blittles me all the time, Chris. It's very <laughs> difficult. <laughs> yeah, sure. So I think our first step was to really understand our patient's perspective about the current measures especially because some of these questionnaires that we are using nowadays um, go back 30 years when our current treatment didn't exist. So we really, uh, I, I think our first fo focus was uh, this one, to, to get a great perception of uh, what our, our patient thought about all these questionnaires and all the items that compose these questionnaires. And it was a very interesting um, experience and uh, and as a second step, we have reached out to an expert panel with 11 specialists to refine the results uh, from this phase one. And then we present the preliminary version of our questionnaire to a group of patients advocates to ensure clarity and relevance of our our final model of this so questionnaire. And what did patients think of the existing questionnaires? So it was really interesting so in our sample with uh patients uh, with kidney cancer undergoing uh, treatment for metastatic disease uh i would say that only 27 percent of the items derived from the urtc calcc 30 the fksi 19 and the aq5d were uh, deemed relevant so i would uh, if we percent, make it, uh 27 so 27. if we wow yeah okay. If we break it down further, so we'll see that only 15 of the 54 items were deemed relevant by 66% or more of our patients' population. So um, it is. It, it was really amazing to see because these patients are spending maybe one or two hours answering to these questions <laughs> several times right, during right. their treatment. And most of these questions were really not relevant. Uh, to their quality of life. Interesting. And then, so tell us the second part of that, and that you work to develop new new questions, new questionnaires. Yeah. So then, uh, in our second phase, we present uh, these results to our expert panel. 
uh, they they have excluded those questions that were similar and they have also uh, proposed new edits Re, uh, they have rewarded for questions and we included two questions based, based on patient suggestions and then we come up with um, 11, uh, 12 questions in our final version which was uh, then presented to a group of patient advocates uh, consisting of eight patients uh, five patients um, five patients and uh, so sorry six patients and two caregivers and it was nice to see because uh, when we we so we we explain all the process of this study and we have also shared with them the URTC, the uh, a sample, uh, an example of the URTC of Calcus 30 the FKSI-19, and the AQ5D, and we we demonstrate which one we have included and which one we have excluded, and basically they agreed with our decision, and they didn't recommend excluding any other item, but they also didn't suggest new items to be included in this list. Uh, they expressed their agreement with um, with the, the exclusion of these 39 items, uh, and they ha also endorse the ones that we have newly included. They just proposed minor edits to the wording of three items. So basically, they asked for one of the questions that we are, we were asking about how their family were coping with their condition or treatment. They have asked us to include also their friends. In this uh, item, they asked us to better explain explain the meaning of engaging activities. So uh, we we also work on this one, and they have asked us to merge uh, to combine overall health with current quality of life, since they were they were not seeing any different important difference in these two questions. I see, Chris. So what am I can go ahead, go, Brian? No, you go, Brian. So how do you know? I mean, we all, we always talk about validated questionnaires, and so how do you know? I mean, clearly the importance of the patients which you act, ask. There's importance there, but but obviously you can't ask every patient. You can't, you know, ask people from necessarily all over the world or different circumstances. So like, how do you? What's the next step in validating this? How do you go from sort of a consensus approach to something that's more accepted and validated? So we are going to validate uh, this model in a retrospect, uh, uh, doing a running a retrospective analysis using the Prism study data, and okay. also in a prospective study, we are going to test this measure in the Care One study. Awesome, Tom, you have a question? Yeah, Chris. So, so essentially, where we've started with this is that we we ask quality of life questionnaires there are many of them we tend to ask more than one some of them have up to 30 questions they are exploratory in nature they have multiple different types of analysis and many of those questionnaires that we that we're asking we're asking patients to do it you know prior to seeing a doctor so in the studies, we say, you know, you can't see the doctor until you've finished out your question, the quality of life questionnaire. And the reason for that is because when you speak to the doctor, it might bias your answers. And that's what makes sense. You know, if you know your scan is worse or by the time you've spoken to your doctor, you say everything's going great. So we tend to ask the patients to do it while they're waiting to see the doctors, which is taking up their time. And as you say, it takes an hour. 
and we're asking patients to do it on a regular basis. Um, and having therapy, having cancer therapy, stressful enough. Coming to hospital is pretty difficult, and parking the car, and and putting these addition these additional questions in place. And people haven't previously asked the patients who are actually having the specific treatment at the specific time, you know, the VEGF targeted therapy treatment at the time they're those patients, what's important to them. And and my take on this is that. What's important to a patient having adjuvant pembrolizumab is very, very different from what's important for a patient having third line belsutifone. And we're using essentially the same tools. Now, some of those tools are clearly useful because they're quite general. Um, and there's an EQ5D that asks five questions about your general health. But there are other tools which are probably less useful. And if you ask lots of questions which aren't necessarily relevant or are very time consuming to patients, you know, heaven forbid the patient actually gives it to their wife. They fill out the questionnaire while they're going to pick up their tablets. We need to develop a system. And I'm not sure if it's questions. I mean, deep down, I can't believe in years to come we're going to be asking patients these questions. I think we'll be using wearable devices and looking at step counts and looking at other sleeping patterns, which I think are going to supersede all this. But I'm worried that the re you know, we often say, oh, there was no difference in quality of life. But, you know, if you ask um, a, 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 a nephrectomized kidney cancer patient, whether their hematuria is worse or not, you guess what? No drug in the world is going to show hematuria is worse. And so I think we Tom, need... I, this is the longest question on record. Um. <laughs> what well, a second longest, actually, Brian, because I have actually got a, a, you know, I have got a longer question <laughs> coming up in a question? second. <laughs> so the question, Chris, is where does this end? Where does... What do you do with this information and is it only going to be specific for this particular group of patients? Because if we've gone down this route and said it's advanced kidney cancer and it's for patients taking VEGF, TKI or immune therapy, does that translate to other settings? And does that mean that every cancer needs to go through the same process? Yeah, I think I totally agree. Uh, it's a, an interesting point. So I think with this study, we were able to identify quality of life areas of priority for priority for our patients and we have seen that a lot of questions appear less relevant for these patients we, which will probably push comparative analysis toward the null hypothesis it is what we are seeing this uh, study uh, potentially based on the data that we have presented in the past uh, annual uh, ASCO meeting we have seen um, a huge difference between um, the relevance of these items uh, rated among patients with metastatic disease and among patients uh, with localized disease. So basically, on this on this presentation, we have seen that instead of uh, fifteen items being relevant, uh, just uh, eight items were relevant for patients with localized disease. Uh, at the time uh, of these presentations, we haven't finalized the recruitment. Uh, so I believe that in um, in a short time frame, we'll be able to to also develop a sim similar steps uh, with patients with localized disease in order to better understand how we can 
simplify the way we are assessing patients' quality of life um, and with a different model for patients with metastatic and with uh, localized disease. We Chris, know that their experience, sorry. Oh, you go, Chris. I interrupted you. I apologize. No, that's okay. <laughs> we know that they are experiencing uh, different symptoms and also, and for sure, uh, different uh, stressors. So we believe that with this uh, strategy, we'll be able to really identify what matters for our patients. Chris, do patients think that their cancer growing is more impactful on their quality of life, or is it the side effects of the treatment? What's the balance between those two? Because I think we mix those up from time to time. We For did sure. a study called the STAR study, which we looked at intermittent therapy, and we didn't show a huge difference in quality of life between intermittent and continuous therapy. There's a bit of debate about that, and I'm happy to have that discussion. But the reality was that I, that we showed that progression occurs much more quickly in those patients who have intermittent therapy. And patients don't like their cancers growing, and that causes not just symptomatic progression, but psychological um, issues, obviously. You know, I, I thought I was well into remission. My cancer was getting better. Everything was going well. I stopped the drug. It's growing again. This demonstrates to me that, that this is going to be a, a big problem for me moving forwards. And that process has huge impact on quality of life. And that may be as important as grade one nausea or grade two diarrhea. So those people who come to me and say, you know, we can stop the drug, it's all fine, and patient's quality of life is going to be fabulous. The answer is, well, actually, if their cancer's growing, that might not be the case. Which is more important to patients? Is it the cancer control or is it the side effects of the treatment? Yeah, I would say both. So if we uh, go back to our data, we're going to see that uh, patients with localized disease and also with metastatic disease, they are worried about their disease progression. Uh, uh, so I'm just like seeing the data right now and uh, uh, almost 77% of our patients with localized disease, they are worried about uh, the, their disease. And among patients with metastatic disease, 89% uh, are worried about that. So this is a really high um, unmet needs that we have to try, that we need to address. And for sure, those patients, uh, uh, patients are also worried about the side effects, especially those that uh, will impact on their ability to enjoy life or even on their ability to, uh, to have the similar how can I say, like physical function uh, as they have before the diagnosis. So I think it is um, two aspects that we we must integrate in our, we must integrate and we must consider in our quarter of life assessment. I think the truth is, I mean, they're inexorably linked, right? You know, patients, of course, are always worried about progression. I'm sure it affects their mental health day to day, week to week, and especially in the week before scans, right? We hear that all the time. And then the side effects of treatment are a constant reminder of their disease, right? And as long as the treatment's working, patients certainly will tolerate a whole lot more. But then they couple that with the fear of it not working or it actually not working. And, and obviously things get much worse. So I, I think I would, I want to talk about the 005 data in our, our final minutes. But I think the, for me, the important point is if you ask a lot of questions that aren't relevant, like you say, you just regress towards the mean and you see a lot of curves that are just overlapping, but I'm not sure that that's meaningful. So, you know, I applaud the effort to, number one, ask patients what they think, and number two, develop questionnaires where it's really a, you know, a refined list of questions that actually matter. And, and I realize there's more work to be done, but it, it strikes me as a step in the right direction. So let's turn, and we just have five minutes left or so, let's turn to um, Tom, 
you presenting the uh, Belzuda of Ham versus I thought, you, I thought you, to be honest, I thought you never asked, Brian. Oh, oh, five trial. Speaking of quality of life, there was some expanded quality of life data in that trial. Yes. Um, why don't you just give us a, a thumbnail of, of what you presented in terms of, of that yeah, data? So, Belzutafan is a, uh, it inhibits HIF2 alpha yeah, yeah, yeah. transcription factor. It's been compared to Everlimus in a randomized phase three study. Uh, in heavily pretreated clear cell renal cancer patients, it showed a 25% reduction in the risk of progression. It showed 22 versus 3% response rates. The overall survival wasn't significant. The adverse event profile, the actual number of adverse events was, was similar in both groups, but um, there were a fewer sort of symptomatic type adverse events in um, uh, in the Belzutafan group. So um, the grade three to five adverse events, 61 versus 62% for Belzutafan and Everolimus respectively. But you can see things like differences in dyspnea and other bits and pieces. And so the question is, you know, how does that affect the quality of life? And our experience of Belzutafan, and you and I have used quite a lot of it, is that actually it's quite a well-tolerated drug. It causes some anemia and some hypoxia that requires particular attention, whereas Everolimus causes quite a lot of mucositis, quite a lot of fatigue and other problems. And so patients probably prefer to be on, you know, probably prefer to be on um, uh, on Belzutafan. And um, Laurence very elegantly presented this data. She also presented some data looking at two quality of life questionnaires that were performed. One was the um, FKSI DRS, that's disease related symptoms. So it's actually not all of the 19 questions. It's down to about nine questions. And she also presented the QLQ C30, that's 30, that's the C refers to 30 questions, the global health square um, um, score quality of life by the URTC. There are different methods of analysis. You can look at the mean analysis over a period and we did that or you can look at time to deterioration using Kaplan-Meier analysis so that means that if there is a significant drop let's say a 10 point drop in the in the uh, Q the um, URTC questionnaire that would define an event a, a deterioration event and therefore you can create a Kaplan-Meier curve so a lot of this actually some of them were secondary endpoints the time to deterioration was secondary endpoints the rest is all exploratory and actually that we showed both in the FKSI and the DRS and the QLQC30 a significant significantly better results um, for in terms of um, disease um, DRS and the global health quality of life score with hazard ratios of 0.53 and 0.75. You can generate hazard ratios by this Kaplan-Meier method, and I realize right. that is so, inherently obvious. So given what we just said about the limitations of these, I mean, is are these data just sort of reinforcing what we all know from giving the drug clinically, that it's pretty well tolerated, or do they tell us something different? And I know you sort of broke it down into some individual components yeah, know, we did. of the QLQ. So is that like what yeah, what are, the, so, what are the clinical insights? So when you look at the the adverse event profile, and then you also look at the different components, you can see that the individual components, so fatigue, for example, is better than Belzutafan, some sleep disturbance is better than Belzutafan, and you can show that some of the key subset analyses are better with Belzutafan than Everolimus that you sort of would expect. And then you can look at the quality of life in different can look at you know you can look at mean scores over 17 weeks rather than this right. time to deterioration and you but can I'm, show similar I, types effects so sorry brian you've got a question for me. i was just asking you like what does it mean i mean there's there's a what lot of different mean? data like what 
What does all this data mean? <laughs> I look. I'm searching I think, for meaning in your data, Tom. Give me, give me so some. I, I, so I think that it would be nice to allocate alpha to quality of life in prospective studies, and we don't do it enough, and that would allow us to. Um, to be more confident in what we say. But in this study, we did look at these disease-related symptom scores and this EORTC time deterioration. We pre-specified this as a secondary endpoint, and we showed that in a pre-specified analysis from before we started, and a lot of what the data I'm presenting, you know, some of these issues, particularly around these subset analyses, are exploratory analysis and exploratory quality of life analysis has got problems associated with it because you can always you can always find something you're looking for but we express pre-specified in this secondary analysis this time deterioration which by the way doesn't always come up trumps you know I mean, there are many as i said before most quality of life shows sort of grade grayness and but this showed that Belzutifan did outperform everlimus in these two key areas. That reinforces the adverse event profile that we talked about, which were distinct between the two. It reinforces the clinical opinion. Um, and while and the clinical opinion, people like you and I have used a lot of the drug, feel that it is a well-tolerated drug. And it looked at the disease-related symptom score using the FKSI score, but also a more of a global health scale on the EORTC score. So two scores, one focusing on symptoms, one more focusing on the cancer, and they were both significantly best. But I actually think what it shows is that Belzutifan is better tolerated than Everolimus, and therefore it is an attractive agent to give to heavily pretreated patients. And it reinforces some of the clinical data and the fact that we don't have overall survival, but we do have better response and different and better PFS means that these other secondary endpoints, I think, do become relevant. <laughs> it it reinforces what we knew, that it's a well-tolerated drug. Chris, do you, I know you just saw the data, but I don't know if you had any additional thoughts. Sorry, yeah, I would say that um, even if, for example, if we compare with the data presented uh, at ESMO, and when we see, for example, data from the Bezut Fund and also with the Tivozanib, I think uh, in which we have like similar clinical data in response rate and progression fear survival, when we have the quality of life uh, data, because we do uh, for bezutifan, but we do not, for example, for tivozanib, I think this uh, help the clinician, for example, to decide which type of treatment they're, uh, they're going to, to pick for their patients. And potentially this can also help our patients to decide uh, which which drug they they would like to pursue. So I would I would say that the quality of life data it's really important uh, because we at least we can have a better expectation on how uh, at least how our patients will perform during their, their treatment. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean I think it's great. I think we need to do more work, and I'd love to see more refined questionnaires. You know, that's some of the problem I have with you know, with the existing questionnaires, exactly why you've done your effort, Chris, right, is to make them better and more relevant. And so patients feel that they're relevant and, and frankly, also so that they don't, we don't reduce their quality of life by spending an hour filling out questionnaires, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't know that we need to ask five different questionnaires of 30 questions each. I'm not, I think there's probably a diminishing returns on that. So it's good to see efforts. Tom, final words? Uh, no, Chris, just terrific work. And, and, uh, and, and, I, and I hope it's are going to be adopted and we can start using this refined system in prospective studies. Thanks all. Thank you.